Hello everyone, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. My name is Jeremy McCandless and you're very welcome. The project is for you and I together to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I always try and be really sparing in how much time I take up with these intros, so today I simply want to say thank you to everyone who listens. And thank you especially to everyone who talks about this show, maybe shares it with friends, talks about it with friends. Anything that you guys have done to make this podcast real, not only in your life, but in the life of others. Something that makes it not just Well, as Shakespeare portrayed in his story of King Lear, something that just means that I'm an old man shouting into the wind. The demand for this show all around the world makes me feel really sane and gives me motivation to keep doing it and I really appreciate the fact that there are so many of you out there who appear to enjoy what I'm trying to do here. So to partner with this show or support the show, you can visit me on patreon.com forward slash Jeremy McCandless. I hope you love the show today. Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast and today we're continuing our journey through Luke and the question I'm going to ask is why do some people appear to be more grateful to God than other people? You know some believers seem to have a deeply grateful attitude and there are other people who don't seem to be bothered at all. I think the fact that the Lord healed 10 lepers, a story we'll come across later on, illustrates that point greatly because it says that only one of those 10 came back to say thank you. So here's the question we're asking today. What makes some people extremely grateful to God and others barely acknowledge his grace at all? And what's the difference in those attitudes? And if we could put a finger on that, surely that would help, well, it would might impact us in us being able to show gratitude for all that God has done in our, our lives. Now, like several passages we've already looked at and looked so far, this one is, a, is, is really a narrative type of story followed by a parable. And what I'd like to do is simply walk through this entire story and the parable and the teaching on it that Jesus gives. But I do believe that overall there is one single story going on here and I think that there's a simple single point that lies behind this whole lengthy passage of scripture. We're going to cover 7, Luke 7 verses 36 to 50 today. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at it in bite-sized chunks, reading and opening up the scriptures hopefully a little bit for you and then I'll try and put it all together and give you an idea of what I believe is the singular important message that lies behind it. So we'll begin today by reading, I'll start by reading just the first three or four verses picking up at Luke seven thirty-six, which tells us this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Okay, that's the first part of this passage, and what it does is it introduces the characters. Like any good story, it gives an introduction and we get a little bit of background into the main characters involved. 
And what we see here, well, initially in verse 36, it's pointing out that Jesus is eating with a Pharisee. He's actually gone to this Pharisee's home and is about to sit down and eat with him. Now, it doesn't tell us a lot about who this Pharisee is at this point, but we will later on discover he's a guy called Simon. Now, the question is, why did this guy invite Jesus to his home? Now, as you can imagine, commentators have come up with all sorts of different ideas trying to figure out what's going on and why he did this. Some say he's simply spying on Jesus to report back to the other Pharisees and the religious leadership. And some say, no, it's not about that. It's about his personal journey. He's heard about and he's struggling with who Jesus is and he wants to get a closer look. And others just say, no, it's just the fact that he's curious and that's it. And there's no spiritual perspective to his seeking at all. Now, I do think if you read the rest of the stories, I think it's at least implied that he knows that Jesus is preaching a gospel of forgiveness. And the other thing we need to know about is the fact, and it's worth noting, is that we can see that he actually didn't do the customary things that would have been expected of him when Jesus arrived, like washing his feet, like anointing his oil. It was just common courtesy to do those things, common politeness, that when you had a guest in your home, that you would either offer them facilities or get someone to wash their feet. And there was also meant to be a greeting. When a man came, he would kiss the other man on the cheek and the woman would do the same for the woman. And there was even a custom, if entering the actual house itself, the custom of putting a drop of oil of fragrance on the guest's head. Now, later in the passage, Jesus will actually point out that this fellow, the main character in the story, didn't do these things. So the very least we can say about him, he was lacking some manners in terms of his uh, allowing Jesus into his uh, orbit. And that's where we get introduced to the second character in the story, this lady, who Luke says in verse 37, well, she's described as a woman of the city and we're told she's a sinner. And when she knew that Jesus sat at the table of the Pharisee's house, we are told that she brings with her an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Now, we also need to look closely at who this woman is and what it says about her for a moment. And it tells us very signally that she was a sinner. Now, many believe that the passage is also suggesting that she was a prostitute by the fact that her hair was unloose and flowing free. Now, a number of people have jumped on this and are very sure about it. In fact, they've gone beyond that. And on certain wings of the church, they will also teach that this woman is, in fact, Mary Magdalene. I wonder if that's what you've heard or perhaps assumed. Now, that's, I suppose, possible. But I have to say there's not a shred of evidence within the text anywhere or referred to across any of the New Testament texts that actually support that. In fact, there is evidence that that tradition came about many, many years later, at least 800 years later, some would say well over a thousand years later. But that aside, the question is, how and why did this woman come to the house? Was she invited? This guy, after all, was a Pharisee. I mean, if she really, as is declared, a sinner, perhaps even a woman of the street, what's she doing in the house? 
Well, let me put it like this. The use of the term house or home translated for it here is most likely referring to the courtyard of the home of this Pharisee Simon. The pattern was then for people who had a reasonable standard of living in a house, lived in a structured building like a house. The larger houses would be built in a square with an open courtyard in the middle. Often in the courtyard there would be a little what we'd call a supposedly a garden and also sometimes even a fountain. And in the warm weather, which was of course most of the year in Israel, people would normally eat in that open courtyard area of the square. Now, it was the custom that when a rabbi came out to eat a meal in such an area, in such a type of house, people were allowed to come in and all kinds of people would come in. Not to eat, but they were free to come in to listen to any pearls of wisdom that might drop, if you like, from the rabbi's lips as he was sharing and eating at the table. And of course, the eating and sharing at the table in that day and that culture was the big place in which things were discussed. The sort of thing that applied in our societies probably until very recently and our, our habit of having dinner in front of the TV. Anyway, I digress. So you can imagine this is a square area, a courtyard area within the enclosure of the general home, but outside the, the building itself. And there's an opening by which people can come through. And I think the image would be of this woman coming through into the courtyard passing people by and when she's but her initial motivation is to come to hear what in her mind is this rabbi speak and then something happens now also the point worth noting is that she talks about this alabaster jar this vial of perfume which is something that all jewish women at that time had it was in fact called exactly as it's translated here an alabaster and in it it contains some costly perfume and we see in verse 37 here that the woman, when she knew that Jesus was at the table in this house, in this home, she specifically brings with her the alabaster flask of fragrant oil. This was probably on a small chain hanging around her neck. And then it tells us she stood at his feet and she begins, or kneel, probably, sorry, she kneels at his feet and she begins weeping and be, the tears begin to fall on his feet and effectively she washes his feet with her tears wiping them with the hair on her head so she kneels literally kneels at the feet of the lord and then does this and then we are told she anoints him and his feet with fragrant oil now again to fully understand what's going on here a little background is helpful Maybe you're thinking in your mind, maybe you've looked at these Renaissance style pictures and you see people sitting at tables, a bit like we do in the 21st century, but that's not what's going on here at all. This is more like the sort of the Japanese idea where you sit and there's a table that's not very high off the ground. Sometimes there's an even lower seat. Sometimes you just sit on the floor or on a cushion, which means that people would be lying out on the floor usually lying on one side on their elbow with their feet stretched out and then with their other hand they would use that to eat the food. So she comes to this scene and her response is when she sees the Lord is she begins to try to cry at, to the point where the te tears flow so freely 
and that she falls on her feet and they felt the tears fall on the Lord's feet. She doesn't have a towel, of course, so she takes her hair, which is evidently long, which is important as well that it's flowing free, as I mentioned before, and she is seen to begin to wipe the tears on his feet with her hair. Now, as I said, the fact the hair is long is significant, and I draw attention to that because the custom was that a woman, once she was engaged, betrothed or married, she would put her hair up in a bun as a young woman and it would stay there for the rest of her life. The only person from that point forward who would see a woman with her hair down would be the wife's husband. So for her to have her hair down in public would certainly have been frowned upon and meant what I said perhaps earlier. And then she's seen to kiss his feet, which is a sign of affection. Now, of course, she's been moved to tears, which there's a sense in which she knows who she is and who she, where, she, where she fits in emotionally and where she stands emotionally before this, uh, the holiness of God. And then she kisses his feet with a sign of affection recognizing as m many of you would immediately that there's a sense that the woman knows how just how much she's been forgiven and accepted by this guy in and of the fact that he's Jesus is allowing her to do that and then again in response she takes the alabaster flask from around her neck and she anoints if you look across the wider text it would seem she anoints his feet and his head now, all of us, this, of course, I mentioned a moment ago, because this, in one sense, is a normal custom. There would be nothing out of the ordinary or unusual about this, except in the fact that she is the one who's doing it here, not the host. It is her who's doing it and not anointing his, washing his feet with water, but with her tears. What a poignant picture this paints. Now, the second part of the story is the reaction of the people, particularly the Pharisee, and the critic his criticism of what's going on here. And that reaction begins in verse 39, where it says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, for that she is a sinner. Now, we also can see from the text, if you look, he doesn't say this out loud. He's saying it to himself, but he's being hypercritical. He's saying, wait a minute, this man, this Jesus guy, he's meant to be a prophet. He's meant to have these supernatural powers. He should know that this is a woman of the street. And if he did, surely he wouldn't want to have anything to do with her. And he certainly wouldn't have let her touch him. So Simon is supercritical of what he's going of what's going on here both of the woman and of Jesus himself now within the rest of the story we have if you like the conclusion to what this and Jesus steps in here and what he does is he uh, Jesus uses a little parable a little store question story to challenge what Simon's doing here and it says Jesus answered him Simon I have something to tell you Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him five hundred denarii and the other fifty. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? 
Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Now there are all kinds of ways to approach and analyze this, but of course the basic point is very simply that one person forgiven is forgiven ten times more than the other. It's 50 versus 500. As an aside, a denarius was considered to be worth roughly a day's salary at that time. So you can look at it in all sorts of ways. But the point is, one is forgiven a debt ten times more than the other. And what's telling us is both of them were in a situation where they couldn't repay and both were freely forgiven their debt. And then Jesus says, which of these two people is likely to love the one who forgave the debt the more? And that's the point of the story. The one who is forgiven most is usually the one who appreciates their forgiveness the most. And that, my friends, is clearly the singular main point that Jesus is making here. Okay, it continues. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water from my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, how many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Okay, so what do we see here? Well, he asks, he saw her sin, didn't he, right? That's the point of the story. He tells us in terms of the debt in verse 43, and he states this plainly in these verses. So he's simply saying and applying it into the situation that here is someone who has much sin, and because that sin has been forgiven, they're much more likely to be grateful and loving in response to it, because you will know all the more to the extent to which you've been forgiven. Now, there's a problem with that verse in the sense it could sound like Jesus is saying she was forgiven her sins because she loved him, but that's not right. If you just read the last verses, it tells us the correct order in the context of this, when it says, Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you go in peace. So there's the key. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace, he says to her. So he's not saying that it was this expression of love or even affection that had saved her. She was simply forgiven because she had faith. The love was a manifestation of the faith and the fact of acknowledging and being grateful for the sins, uh, uh, the extent of the sin by, through which she'd been forgiven. And that's the point I want to make, and I believe Jesus is making. To him, little is forgiven, the same loves little, as it says here. That's the point to underline in your mind. That, I believe, is the main point of the story. He illustrates it in human terms first by using this parable of the idea of someone being released for financial debt in verse 42. But he states very plainly in verse 47, he explains what the spiritual perspective of this. How helpful is it for him to do it in a practical way we can still understand to this day before bedding in, if you like, the main spiritual truth. 
Now, I want us just to notice a couple of things before I sum up. Firstly, being saved and being forgiven are in effect the same things. He's saying you're forgiven, but when he gets to the end of this passage, he also frames within the same almost sentence, within the same thought, the fact that she is saved. And then he says to her in response to that, go in peace. Now, the English translation from which I'm reading says go in peace. The Greek text actually says, and some of the translations do pick up on this, it actually says go into peace. And there is a difference between going into in peace and going into peace. Now, both phrases mean slightly, these two phrases mean slightly different things. At that time, a rabbi would say, go in peace at a funeral. So that would be the phrase used over the person who had died at the funeral. But he would then say, go into peace to anybody that was living. So Jesus is actually saying to this woman, still pick that up in our modern translation of it, but I just want to be clear that you understand. What he's saying is, by saying, go in peace, go into peace, he's saying, I want you to now live the rest of your life in peace. Not just peace in the fact that you're forgiven, but peace in peace with God by living in a new way, in a new lifestyle. And that is the story. It's a beautiful one, isn't it? It's all here. It's all of the gospel here for us. It tells us we've been saved by faith, and a result of that, we have been forgiven of anything, no matter what we've done. And because of that, we have peace with God, and we can live our life there on through in peace with God. Now, it's not just here. You can go through the Bible from cover to cover and you'll find many examples and illustrations of this exact principles. But I don't believe there's really any passage that more completely or more beautifully explains what's going on here when we're forgiven by the Lord. So to sum all of this up, all who trust Christ are forgiven. That's there. It's in verse 50. But those who are forgiven a lot tend to love a lot. That's just natural response to that sense of forgiveness. So let me just conclude by making a couple of observations. And one of the observations is this. The natural consequence of our faith and our understanding that we have been forgiven is the fact that we should love. James in his epistle says, faith without works is dead. In fact, I'll read it for you. James chapter 2.15 says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but do not give them anything which is needed for their body, what does it profit? So here's where the rubber hits the road, friends. The outworking of this gratefulness of the fact that we have forgiven, the outworking of this love will and should include practical things like feeding the hungry, clothing the homeless, because that is the clear manifestation of love of God and love for those that God loves as it's released into the world. So back into Luke 7, the basic says this woman is a great sinner, but she has faith, and as a result of that, she is forgiven, and her response to that forgiveness is she expresses love. So the natural consequence of faith 
when properly understood, when forgiveness, when properly understood, is love, gratitude, thankfulness, and love applied in the world in which we live. So let me clarify, I believe the point of this passage, and I also believe that it's super critical to our lives, is the fact, let me sum it this way, the issue is a not the actual amount of sin, the real issue in our lives is the extent of the awareness of the sin we have in our life. You see, friends, if you're not aware of sin, you may be in the position where you're thinking, you know what, I, don't, I haven't sinned as much as other people. So you may not realize the extent to which you've been forgiven. Now, what we know in this passage is that this guy, this Pharisee, he's committing sin, but the sin he's committing is what we might call a sin of omission. He's the one, did you notice, he didn't wash the feet. He didn't give the customary greeting of the kiss in the cheek. He didn't anoint Jesus' heads with oil. These were sins of things he did not do. Hers, in her life, they were sins of things she did actually and had done. So his were sins of omission. Hers were sins of commission. And that, I believe, is part was what's going on here. You see, there are many people, some of us, I'm sure, are not aware of the sin in our lives, some of the things, because we're only focusing on the things that we've committed and we're aware of, maybe the things that we think of as gross sins. But there are other things in our lives that we may not even be aware of. So let me put it this way. The main reason that most people don't think they're great sinners is because we choose to compare ourselves to other people, saying, well, you know what? Yeah, I'm forgiven, but I'm not as bad as other people. You might say, well, yeah, I'm forgiven, but at least I was never a prostitute. Or if you're a man, you say, well, I know I'm forgiven, but at least I'm not a murderer. And that's a problem. That's a real problem before God, because what you're doing there, friends, is you're applying the wrong standard. The right standard, well, what's the right standard? I'm sure you know the answer to that. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when the comparison you make and the standard you look at is what we're meant to do is compare ourselves and our lives to the holiness of God, then and only then can you recognize how truly great and widespread the sin in your life is. But... The response to that understanding should be something that increases your love and gratitude for the fact that all those sins have been forgiven, both those sins of commission and omission. So in conclusion, I submit to you the problem in this passage is really trying to point out the main problem to us is our view of sin, not the sin themselves. This woman, she absolutely knew she was a sinner, but the Pharisee, he didn't because he was self-righteous. And he thought, yeah, he acknowledged at a degree, but he didn't think of himself as much as a sinner as this woman. After all, he was a religious man. He was a self-righteous man. Francis of Assisi wrote, there is nowhere a more wretched or miserable sinner than I. That's a good starting point. That reminds me of what the Apostle Paul himself said, does it not? Probably the greatest sin of all is not realizing you have anything and not actually even being conscious of that sin. May I repeat that? The greatest sin of all is not to be aware 
that you are a sinner. Only a real sense of sin can be the thing that opens the door to the forgiveness of God in your life. And that real sense of acknowledging yourself as a sinful fallen human being will allow God to work in those areas of life, even in those areas of sins of omission. They're forgiven anyway, but allowing that forgiveness to be applied in your life and pour out, fill out in the form of love and blessing for both you and for others. So the suggestion here I'm making today is there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity. Yes, you are forgiven, but there's an opportunity here in understanding this to increase the expression of the love of God in your life. And if you want to and do that, you increase your gratitude for what good God has done for you. And it always must begin by not comparing yourself with other people, but by comparing yourself to the perfection of Christ and recognizing that he has paid that price in your place. That's what I believe this passage is really trying to teach us. Thank you for joining me today. great you've been with me here today i'll quickly flat sign off and say you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get it on whatever platform you can also like it you can share it perhaps a link to it with others on those places on the internet you can be part of the project enable other people to make the commitment to make the in-depth study of the word of god not just the reading of it the in-depth study of the word of god part of their daily lives. I'm benefiting from it. I know from the reach outs and the messages I get back to me that lots of people are. And thank you for that. You also, if you're new to this, please be aware that there's a episode notes page with every episode and there's a full transcript of everything I said. Always free, always freely available, always copyright free in the public domain for you to use in whatever way you wish. And all of this is enabled and supported by those people who've partnered with me on Patreon and other places to do that. So a special thanks to them and a special thanks to you for being with me today. I do hope you'll stick with it. I do hope you'll make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of your life from here on in. So with that all said, we'll leave it at that point today and I'll say bye-bye for now. And I do hope I'll see you back here again tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.